Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's one minute past seven. You are one minute past seven. No, it's not. It's one minute past nine. <laughs> You're tuned to 102.7, three triple R, and it's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Uh, my name's Bron Burton, and over in the other studio through two panes of glass is... Oh, no, we can't. So we will sort that out in just a minute. But farm is he? Oh, hang on. I think I've got you now. Oh, you got me now. Yeah, Here we, we go. Thanks, Kent. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> How are you, Bob? Oh, very good. Thank you. Excellent. Very good. Thank you so much to Tim for um, his wonderful three hours of Vital Bits. And thank you so much to Andrew, Retro Andrew, for Retro Soulful Bits. And you can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am. Um, what an amazing, amazing man he is. And uh, yes, often referred to as the hardest working man in community radio. And I wholly concur. <laughs> All right, today's program, we've got an awesome one lined up for you and look, the party's over. Um, the spider crabs have all but gone and uh, we're going to take a look at what um, I've been calling Crabapalooza 2020 has been like. So what were the highlights and the lowlights? We're going to be catching up with two very well-known people in the Melbourne diving uh, community. Um, P.T. Hirschfeld and Jackie Younger, who we've had on this program many times over the years, talking about um, all sorts of things, diving in general, uh, some of the great things about going diving in Port Phillip Bay, but also some of the campaigns that they've been involved with. Yeah, um, amazing community activism. Yeah. So um, you might remember Operation Sponge, where this huge exercise um, a couple of years ago to transplant a whole lot of sponges from a pier uh, down in Blegarry, which had to be removed because it, it was not sort of structurally um, anymore but the um, the diving community kind of rallied and took a whole lot of sponges off the pier and transplanted them <laughs> onto the new uh, new raw um, timber pylons yeah and well, that's a fantastic project incredible so fun to do it as well yeah yeah um, and then of course raise awareness which PT led last year um, to I guess do exactly that raise awareness about um, the some of the really awful practices that have been going on with um, uh, banjo sharks and, and other types of sharks and rays that have been inadvertently hooked by some fishes who've been going after other fish and and then stabbed through the head and tried to be killed or not killed, just horrible stuff. So um, we're going to be catching up with PT and uh, Jackie. Um, they've both set up their own groups to do with spider crabs, to actually draw attention to the magnificence that is the annual migration of spider crabs into Port Phillip Bay. Uh, and they've been out diving every weekend. They've seen the crabs come in, but they've also seen some of the behaviours that have been going on through, um, uh, what will we call it, farm? Well, the <laughs> local fishing community who likes crab fishing. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be fair, there are some, and I don't even need to say there are some, there are many, many recreational fishers out there who are equally... Um, uh, just 
shocked by some of the behaviours that have that have gone on. And so we're going to take a look at what's happened and really kind of spend some time doing this because this is a pulse event. The crabs come in, they're here for a while and then they go again and then it's a bit of out of sight, out of mind, I think. Um, it is for us too because we you know, move on to other things and things happen. So it's, it's really important, I think, at this point in time that we actually take a look at the migration season that has just finished and really look ahead to maybe what could be done differently next year. Yeah, and really look at this uh, this quite new trend of crabs being taken for food as well because it hasn't been like that um, for many years. It's not like it's a, it's a tradition or anything like that. So mm-hmm. it's quite a new phenomenon which uh, which makes it um, all the more interesting to yeah have a chat about that today. Now we're also going to take a look at um, the upcoming Plastic Free July Farm. Yes, it is nearly time. <laughs> it is nearly that time of year, everybody. And uh, I will be sh- sharing shortly some tips for beginners and for people who've done it a few times and been around the block as well. Excellent. Uh, and then to close the show, just for something a bit different, um, Jeff Maynard, who's not different of all, he at all, he he's what part of our family and he comes in or is on air <laughs> at the moment um, every four weeks or so having a look at some um, some shows and ads and movies and all sorts of things from from yesteryear that relate to the marine environment and to this week today he's going to be having a look at a 1960s tv show called Namor the Submariner and looks to me like Namor might be a, uh, a predecessor of Aquaman so this was a 1960s tv cartoon show brought to my attention by leaping Larry L. So, Leapster, if you're listening, we've um, decided to do this one for you today. So, I hope you enjoy. All right. Got a bit of weather, unless you do farm? No. Excellent. <laughs> That will be me. That's all yours. So forecast for today, we're heading for a top of 15. um, Possible rainfall, one to four mils. um, Chance of rain, 90%. So it's more than likely going to rain today around the Melbourne metro region. Uh, Partly cloudy, high chance of showers becoming less likely this morning. Uh, Medium chance of showers during the afternoon and evening. Gusty winds. Winds westerly, 15 to 25 kilometres an hour. And then tending northwesterly early in the morning, increasing to uh, 25 to 40 kilometres an hour in the morning. Tomorrow we're heading for a top of 17 with a shower or two. Same for Tuesday. Looks like it's going to dry up a bit on Wednesday, 15 and partly cloudy. Thursday, 16, mostly sunny. And Friday, 17, mostly sunny and a late shower. Um, been a bit of news this week, Fum. You've got yeah, some there? absolutely. So there's been some really good news for the Nature Conservancy, uh, which is the organisation that has been working on restoring the shellfish reefs in the bay to their former glory. And um, they have just been injected with a whole bunch of uh, funding and uh, that allows them to um, double the extent of the restored reefs from two and a half hectares to five and a half hectares, which is very exciting. And this is a uh, um, collaborative effort between um, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, the Ross Trust and the Victorian government. So this is a really good example of how philanthropy is actually uh, working with all these new organisations, all these organisations and and the Victorian government as well and making that a really cross-sectoral collaboration for, uh, yeah, restoring the ecosystems. And um, Chris Gillies, uh, the Ocean's Lead from the Nature Conservancy, says that they're really excited uh, to make that announcement and um, very interesting as well that one of the new reefs will be the first one on the Mornington Peninsula side of the bay. Yeah, because they've been working in Geelong 
Um, and there will also be a new site there, so Nine Feet Bank uh, in Geelong Arm. So that will be trialing a new restoration technique uh, that they're that they're going to trial out that has never been attempted before. So it's it's also a bunch of innovation going on there in this project. Um, yeah, but Mornington Peninsula side that would be very exciting because if we get some new reefs there, um, there's going to be amazing diving. Even better than there is at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's that's very exciting. And um, they, they do know that there used to be reefs there because there's been some um, exploratory dives there before. Uh, and they have found Australian flat oyster shells on the seafloor. Um, and that served as evidence of former native oyster reefs off Tromana. So if you want to see a video, go to the website of the Nature Conservancy and uh, you can see a three-minute underwater video reel about that project as that's well. A, that's awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, very excited about that. I've got some good news too about cuddles. Yay, That's cuttlefish. Oh, my God, As yes. opposed to cuddles. That always brings good news. <laughs> uh, cuttles, cuttlefish numbers and um, booming off South Australia. This is Wyala, which is a well, very well-known dive spot for, um, for giant cuttles. And they're estimating with the numbers that have come in could be the best that ha- they've seen in 20 years. So these are the giant Australian cuttlefish. There's different types of species of cuttlefish, but this is the, the giant Australian cuttlefish. And um, with reports, positive signs emerging at this year's spawning uh, that uh, local dives have been reporting bumper numbers. So this is it's interesting that we're talking about spider crabs today because this is a really interesting parallel that goes on in South Australia, um, to my knowledge, without the complications of... Um, untoward recreational fishing activity. People just observe this incredible spectacle and and marvel at it. So this occurs between May and August, even the timelines are similar. May and August every year, cuttlefish from right across Spencer Gulf converge on an eight kilometre long strip of rocky reef at Point Lolly. And uh, while cuttlefish are endemic along coastlines across the world, it remains the only place in the world where cuttlefish gather in large numbers to breed. So it's pretty cool. There was a crash in population in 2013. It's gradually been coming back um, about a 20% increase in numbers that's been estimated per year for the last five years so estimates are that cuttlefish numbers are now up around the 200,000 mark amazing and also uh, somebody also told me that they've never seen cuttlefish that big before as Mm. well so there's not only more of them but they're also bigger and fatter so that's a good sign it's awesome there's a quote here from um, whaler dive shop owner tony bramley he's been diving in the area since the 1980s said the fish are starting to return to a size not commonly seen since the late 1990s so uh Really great news and so important that we um, we look at this. Oh, counts by the South Australian Research and Development Institute, also known as SADI. They're going to be doing some um, some counts to – well, they have been doing some counts, which they're now analysing, and um, there'll be some reports from that released later in the year. Fantastic. So there's a lot of research going on on the cuttlefish there. We could learn from that for our spider crabs, couldn't we? we? Could. Yeah. Don't you love a parallel and it's – not that far away. <laughs> That's right. Nine eleven. you're listening to Radio Marinara. We're going to play track now. And then when we come back, we'll be speaking with P.T. Hirschfield and Jackie Younger. Um, we've also mentioned, too, that if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to put through, um, particularly for Jackie or P.T., feel free to put that on um, the Radio Marinara Facebook page. Um, probably the best place to do that is under the little um, the, the posting that I put up yesterday for today's show. And um, we'll try and address that over the course of the next half hour or so yep i got it open here so if you have any questions please post them there and uh, hopefully we can get to them and uh, get some expert opinions here brilliant thanks Bum. all right 916 and you are listening to radio marinara here on three triple r 
All right, folks, the party's over. The annual migration of spider crabs is done and dusted for another year. So what were the highlights and lowlights of Crabapalooza 2020? And apart from the research uh, talked about by Fisheries Victoria, is there anything else that needs to be done to prepare for the return of the spider crabs in 2021? P.T. Hirschfield and Jackie Younger are well known to the diving community of Melbourne. They've been regular guests over the past few years on Radio Marinara. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, you might remember some of the great work they've done over the past few years with the great sponge transplant at Blairgarry Marina and last year's Raise Awareness campaign. PT and Jackie are also involved in two groups that seek to show the phenomenon that is the annual migration and molt of the spider crabs and to draw attention to some of the threats faced not only by the crabs but by their surrounding environment during the annual molt. So to talk about this year's event, its highs and lows and to look ahead at 2021, it's with great pleasure we welcome, I think for the first time here together, and I'm happy to be corrected, from uh, Spider Crabs Melbourne, PT Hirschfield. Good morning, PT. Good morning. I think you might be right. <laughs> and from Spider Crab Alliance, Jackie Younger. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning. Um, I, we were actually at your last show together for the raise in 2018. So we have been on the air together, but we're in your studio. Yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> well, it's so great to have you back. Um, let's start with your respective groups, um, Spider Crabs Melbourne and Spider Crab Alliance, and to talk about them because they are two separate entities um, particularly running through Facebook. Um, maybe let's have a look at the, them uh, as separate entities and who are your groups and why were you set up? Um, PT, let's start with Spider Crabs Melbourne. Yeah, so Spider Crabs Melbourne was set up in 2015 pretty much as a direct result of the fact that whenever the crabs came in and were accessible for people to see, uh, the rumour mill would always start and people would get to see heads up the crabs were in the area but because they'd be on the march they might drive four or five hours and the crabs wouldn't be found in the same spot and as we started to observe trends that the crabs would move around and then they would settle we realized it might be beneficial to let people know when they're on the move and when they had children when might be a good time to come in and see them so basically we're a membership of about two and a half thousand people who love to celebrate the annual spider crab aggregation. And uh, more recently, we've started to become more active in terms of some of the issues surrounding those aggregations. Excellent. Thanks for that. And um, Jackie, what about um, Spider Crab Alliance? Can you tell us a bit about the history of your group? Yeah, so we're, we're a bit younger than Spider Crabs Melbourne. We formed June last year after the um, migration of 2019, the aggregation. Um, we were formed just to highlight some community uh, concerns over the spider crab netting activities. So we wanted to give a positive platform for people that wanted to share their concerns with government bodies. And we, we are pro-protection of the crabs, so we also set up a petition um, to try and just alleviate the tensions on the pier, which we might get into later, but um, it was to try and bring every, everyone together under one voice so everyone felt heard and they could give their perspective on how they felt about the spider crabs. And you've got a lot of signatories already on this petition, haven't you? I was sort of going to get to this at the end, but let's let's do this now and we can come back to it later on as well. There's a, the, sure. Yeah. What, where are you up to with your numbers? So we're just about to hit 25,000. So it's really interesting because last year, after the last molt in 2019, we're up to about 19. So it's climbed about five or 6,000 just over this two-week three-week period, so it's getting a lot of attention. So almost about to hit 25,000 
And what is it that you're actually asking for in the petition? Again, I'm jumping so right to the, the end of this, but let, let's just oh, do this no, now. That's okay. Um, in the petition, we're, look, we're looking at a we, – we would ideally like a ban during the aggregation season. So the, um, we would like uh, uh, to stop the fishing activities during that time when the spider crabs come in and they start to do their molt. So that is – we're aiming high. That is what we would like. Um Look, Victoria-wide would be fantastic. At the very least, some of the local piers, which we've talked about recently, something like an exclusion zone. Um, it's just it, it just something needs to change. So that's our main driver. Um, it's not a divers versus fishers thing. It's not a dark conservationist versus fishers. We're all working together. We have many fishers on board with this petition and the, and the campaign. So it's about having... We want everyone to be able to see this. I want the students that I teach every day to be able to see this beautiful event when they're my age. So it's about preserving. Yeah, and, and, and Jackie, what is the underlying reason for you guys to to wanting you know to want to put a ban on this um, right at this time of year? Because there's just so many of them coming in. Playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. <laughs> why? Why the ban in the uh, uh, in, in the again. aggregation um, period? Oh, are you there? Uh, I here. am now. Yes. Ah, here we go. No, no, you're okay. Did you hear Farm's question then? No. Oh, okay. No, I didn't either. That's all right. We've got a um. So Farm, they didn't hear your your question. So oh. we'll sort out. There'll be something technical going on between the studios where they're not able to hear you. But that's okay. All right. Um. Uh. What we might do is actually what I was keen to do at this point is actually just take a step back and look at the um, the, the lead up to the spider crabs arriving because we get pretty excited every year around March. Um, we know that the crabs are on the march. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's called March. No. Um, and just from your own experiences within your own communities, can you talk us through um, just that time leading up to the spider crabs arriving? Like what, what's sort of the anticipation and the build up for you and your groups? Well, certainly in spider crabs, Melbourne, as soon as we get the first sightings of those crabs on the march, people's ears prick up and they're very interested in what those movements are. Um, I guess because the interest in the spider crabs, yes, there's the, the molting itself, which is one of the most fascinating aspects, but actually the numbers that travel around um, that are fairly uh, accessible for the general public to be able to see. And sometimes they'll come in and make a brief appearance. So all of those brief appearances are documented and shared with great enthusiasm amongst the Spider Crabs Melbourne um, group. And everyone is waiting with bated breath to hear that they've come in and settled so that they can come in and start uh, witnessing and documenting, videoing, photographing the, the grand event of the year. And it is such a grand event and this like it's a phenomenon and I think that's what we need to call it. And we were talking about this earlier, I don't think you're able to hear us, but with a parallel happening on just over the state border in South Australia with the giant cuddles that also come in, you know, at about this time and they come in with the purpose to breed, they're here for a couple of months and then they, they largely disperse. Um, and whilst the spider crabs, they, they don't come in to breed, do they? What do we know about the purpose of why they come in? Well, we, our understanding is that they're coming in to molt and that as far as we know, the spider crabs can't mate until they've molted. Um, so this is kind of a, a preliminary activity as far as we can deduce to the molting season, uh, to the 
breeding season. Um, but we, we certainly, as well as having local attention on this, um, we always have a, a great national and international um, interest in the spider crab aggregations of Port Phillip Bay. And we've always got these, uh, you know, film crews that are always lined up and on standby for when the crabs come in because they want to come and document it. And they share that globally with the world. So, you know, it's, it's a real tourist attraction as well. And the more people we have coming in and documenting, the more research and the more data and the more understanding we can start to piece together about what this is in terms of their life cycle. Hi, Peter. Can you hear me now? Nope, still can't. Okay, so Fum's about to ask a question, but um, you guys can't hear her. So maybe Fum, why don't you ask it and then I'll translate it okay, through. Okay, this is, uh, yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, so PT, I was just wondering, it's quite important, isn't it? Because you're saying that um, you think that the spider crabs need to actually molt first before they can reproduce. So what do you, what do you think the effect is going to be on the populations if they're going to be all um, basically overfished or, uh, you know, fished out before they can even get to that reproduction? stage of laying eggs so the question is um if the if the spider crabs need to molt before they reproduce what's going to be the impact um for for future generations of spider crabs if they're if they're being fished before they have that opportunity to molt um this is this is something that you know we're still learning about so the vfa and all the interested groups we're still learning about what what impact this is going to have pt might come in here as well with this but we really noticed this year whether it's the aggregation that just came into rye that the spider crabs are really small mm. um as a whole like i noticed how small they were and it really a lot of comments have come through about that so that's something that we've noticed but with with more research needed we really need to learn about how much of an impact this is going to have when these when these animals are fished out so rapidly on such a large scale yeah pt do you have a comment on that Yes, certainly this year we observed perhaps smaller numbers than we had in previous years coming into those accessible structures of the man-made piers. And we had observationally most of the, the crabs that were harvested very quickly were pre-molt. So they were very small. And that means there were, you know, significantly less crabs that were, had the opportunity to molt and then return into the bay and then complete that mating process if that's what happens for them next. So at the moment, we're, we're going from all the observational data that we can put together. Um, some, some research would be, you know, fantastic into all of this. And, and uh, fisheries actually did suggest that, you know, divers should get involved in helping to collect molts and we can start putting that piece of, you know, um, data together. But this year there were almost no molts <laughs> from from a, an aggregation that came into multiple in the safety of numbers. Those numbers were taken very quickly in a very concentrated time span. And as someone who goes in, and I probably spent two to three um, dives a day, most days during that two-week um, crab season, I, I could barely find any crabs to document, which is absolutely a first for me. Normally we have this crabageddon of, you know, carapaces strewn all over the, the ocean floor as a as a signal of a successful molting season. This year, there barely any molts took place. And the ones that molted were very quickly picked off by, um, you know, predators, including stingrays and also taken by people who were collecting the, the crabs. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's 
we're just trying to put that all together and to look at some of the issues that are arising from it and how we might be able to work together to address those. 9.31, you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. We're just going to take a moment to have a look at Plastic Free July coming up, Farm. My mic on? Yes. There we go. Hi. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's the most exciting time of the year for me. More exciting than Christmas. <laughs> Plastic Free July. Um, yeah, so for the people who have just tuned in and they don't know about Plastic Free July, it is a challenge that you can take um, with yourself, your friends, your family, your school, your workplace, everywhere you want to go. Um, and it challenges you to reduce as much of your single-use plastic as you can for the whole month of July. Um that can be quite a challenge, obviously, uh, but it is super fun to get on board with it. And it is a really, really good way of not just changing your own behavior around your plastic use, but also into just finding out where the plastic that you use comes from and how much it is that we're actually using. So it is a very good way of educating yourself about where the plastic in your life originates from. And it helps you also tackle ways of... Um, really reducing the plastic that you're using. So um, every year I try to do uh, a lot of uh, uh, community outreach around this because I think it is a wonderful way of getting on board because it can be quite overwhelming to um, you know, have to reduce uh, the amount of plastic that you use in your life, in daily life. So doing it for one month consistently and making that a super fun challenge that you can do with your friends and your family um, and your workplace and your school uh, makes it all the, much, all the more easy and all the more enjoyable as well now you did this last year didn't you yeah we did we did oh, i do it every year yeah i think this is going to be year six or seven for me i kind of lost count now <laughs> and i remember last year when we were talking about this you were saying it's it's super important to to understand that any change is a good change that's right that's yeah. right because the, the the hidden agenda of plastic free july is of course to instill behavior change in yourself it takes about 21 days to a month to learn a new behavior for yourself so if you do things consistently like you know bringing your keep cup or um, making sure that you have your reusable bags ready in the car before you go shopping and you do that consistently for a month you'll find out that at the end of the month you don't need to think about it anymore and you've actually made quite a big change mm. um, so I just wanted to share um, a few tips for beginners and for the more advanced of us as well because there's uh, a lot of people who have been doing this for many years now and uh, you know after uh, after doing it for a few years you kind of you kind of start, you know, you know where your plastic comes from and, and what you can change. Um, so for beginners, I would probably say that um, start preparing now. Plastic Free July is only a few weeks away. So start thinking about what kind of things you need to change in your daily routines now, especially when you do shopping, uh, that will allow you to refuse any plastics um, in your shopping. So, so have a look around. Are there any local butchers or local fishmongers that you could use instead of the supermarket, for example? Because those people will let you take your own boxes, your reusable boxes, to put the meat and the fish in, um, rather than a supermarket where everything is already pre-packaged. Um, so things like that. Um, make sure that you know where your nearest um, markets are because it's so easy to get plastic-free fruit and veg if you can avoid the supermarket, right? So those are all things you can do to, to start preparing now. And another thing that um, I always um, recommend to beginners, especially when you're doing it for the first time, is um, keep all of the plastic 
that you accidentally use during plastic free July. So mm. we have this rule where you cannot fail plastic free July. So if you try your best and you still accidentally get a plastic bag or somebody gives you something that's wrapped in plastic, um, that is not a failure. That's actually a learning. Mm. So the first two years that I did this, I kept all of my plastic for the whole month. And I, at the end of the month, I had a really good look at it because I did my best to avoid it. But some of the stuff just comes into your life because it's so pervasive. You just can't help it. And by looking at and evaluating what I had at the end of the month, it really taught me a lot about what can I do for next year or what can I change in my life right now to avoid those kind of surprise plastics uh, in my life. So that was, that was really helpful. And you can really go by the... Uh, the Pareto principle, right? Where um, 20% of the effort yields 80% of the results. Mm. So if you look at all the plastic that you use in your daily life, um, usually you'll find that if you... So you usually find that about 20% of the stuff you use yields 80% of the plastic. Right. Right? So have a look what exactly in your plastic use and what kind of items make up those 80% and then try and reduce those for the biggest effect in your life. So that's a, that's a tip for the for the beginners also for if you're a little bit nerdy like me and you like numbers. <laughs> you to me, the that. obvious the obvious standards can be things like toothpaste. Yeah. And and so to look for an alternative to a toothpaste, because of course we know that you can and many people do and it's fantastic. I do. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. great. I haven't got my head around that yet. So yeah. for well, me, that's the immediate one I know is going to be in my bucket. In my, yeah, my that's right. Bucket. And so that's actually a good segue into my tips for the more advanced people. So, you know, after you do Plastic Free July for a few years, it becomes a routine, it becomes quite normal and you know where your plastic is going to come from and you know after a few years you may have reduced it as much as you can actually already so what I've been starting to do now is every year in Plastic Free July I will tackle one particular practice that I do that that uses plastic and I will change that to be fully plastic free and then continue that forever Yep. So I will make one lasting behavior change ah, and cool. I'll, I'll set myself the month to organize it and set up the system. So, for example, plastic-free bathroom uh, is what happened over a few years. Uh, plastic-free shaving by um, getting rid of those pesky throwaway razors and just getting uh, a really old-fashioned heavy uh, safety razor. Yep. And all of the blades, you know, they're stainless steel. They come in cardboard. Um, and for the soap, I just use a bar soap, uh, a bar shaving soap that I keep in a tin. So uh, with that, over a long period of time, like over my lifetime, that will save a whole heap of plastic waste that nobody needs. Um, so that's one of the examples of a lasting behavior change. And and toothpaste is a really good one. Um, I use a tooth powder that I've made with a recipe by um, Aaron Rhodes, the Rogue Ginger. Um, and it's based on uh, basically sodium bicarbonate and cinnamon powder. It's quite tasty and it works. <laughs> I'm going to have to get clean. a lesson from you on how to create this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So get on board, everybody. Um, you have a few weeks to um, to prepare. And if you have any questions or you need any help with this, just get in touch with us through the Radio Marinara Facebook page and I will answer your questions as best as I can. Brilliant. Thanks, Farm. Hey, from one superhuman to two superhumans, I'm hoping are still waiting online. PT Hirschfield, Jackie Younger, are you there? We are here. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. I thought where we left off, we were talking about the spider crabs just for people who've just tuned in. And, um, you know, their, their annual migration, they come into Port Phillip Bay. It's a, an incredible spectacle. The whole dive community 
big anticipation builds up, gets down there. So much incredible footage. Um, but there are some um, errant human behaviours that kind of come out of the woodwork too. I thought we might just take a look at what's happened this year um, and then kind of move to some of the Facebook comments coming through. Um, maybe, uh, I don't know which of you wants to take this question about sort of let's, let's have a quick uh, summary of, of what you observed this year. Um, I'll go if you like, um, and PT might add to this, just a really quick summary. Um, we've seen a lot of footage of people and seen in the water, a lot of people dragging those nets over the spider crabs, landing them on stingrays and sort of scraping them up pylons. They're sort of the main points that are really, it's not just about taking the spider crabs out of the water, it's the environmental damage um, from scraping the pylons and also there's been a lot of litter put in the water. So these they in, in, in brief, that's some of the issues that we've had this year. Full, being full moon, being um, po post-corona with a lot of people still not working, so there's a lot more people fishing down there than there would be, and the full moon all coming at one on one weekend. PT, what were your observations? Yeah, my observations of this season basically are where else in the world, let alone Australia, would you have this many people fishing with this many in-water users there to see the crabs, with this many marine animals, not just the crabs, but their predators. And we've noticed a lot of these chicken carcasses being dumped in the water after, you know, they've finished uh, being used in the nets. I counted more than 80 on one dive. And to me, it's a very unique scenario that pre presents some very unique challenges. Um, to public safety, to the marine environment, to public perceptions of the event. And it requires some really unique solutions. And from where I stand, that involves, you know, the, the community working together with probably council and Park Victoria and DFA and the ministers for tourism and for um, fishing and for the environment. So it's a really broad-reaching set of impacts that needs quite a lot of discussion and collaboration prior to the next molting season in order for us to address and resolve some of the problems we've seen emerging in the last two years. Yeah, PT, and you're right about that, uh, especially the safety as well. We just had Matt get in touch via the Facebook page as well, and he said uh, the song we were playing at the start of the show called Drowning was very ironic to him because somebody actually dropped a crab pot on his head while he was diving oh under the pier. So those are real risks um, with the, the, the kind of different user groups that are around when the spider crabs are out. Yes, I, I think we've had a really unique opportunity to observe this event because it is an annual event in, in Victoria's tourism calendar. It's been closely watched for many years prior to the previous two years where it's been targeted by fairly extensive fishing. And we're able to have this unique perspective of seeing what's happening both on the pier and beneath the pier. And both of those angles have provided us with some um, elements of concern. Let's talk about the risk factor because, um, you know, the, the this, there's some of these questions have come up through both of your respective Facebook pages about putting all of these chicken carcasses in the water and effectively there's the potential for them to act as burly. I wanted to ask both of you because you're both very experienced divers. You go out there all the time. Have you noticed, is there, and this is just your observations, um, but anecdotally have you kind of noticed an increase in the presence of various shark species, um, particularly during this time with all those chicken carcasses in the water? I definitely I'll have. definitely pass that one on to PT because um, <laughs> she's definitely got something to say there. So, 
Go, yeah, take it away, PT. Absolutely. You know, I normally have to go to Fiji or the Maldives or somewhere to get my, my fill as a recreational diver of decent sharks, and I've never really seen a decent-sized shark under one of our piers in over 700 dives there. But um, if you want to have a look at my Pink Tank Scuba Facebook page or if you wanted to um, have a look at what's happening in the Spider Crabs Melbourne group, and anyone who wants to join that group, just write Radio Marinara as your reason for wanting to enter, and that'll speed it up. You can see some great footage and photos of some of the shark species that, you know, in a very short period of time, we've seen a greater number of sharks and a greater variety of species of sharks than recreational water users would normally experience over a lifetime of diving just you know, surrounded by those chicken carcasses, which are a concern. Yeah, and normally that would be a lot of fun for divers, but there's also species, of course, like the bronze whalers that do tend to come in that you don't really want to run into when you're having a peaceful dive down there. Yeah, and not one who's in the water at this particular time is an experienced diver with, with shark awareness. We love sharks. We respect their place in the community, but adding them into this big diverse um, event with so much going on and so many members of the general public in the water probably is not the best idea necessarily. Guys, we're going to have to wrap up and there are lots of questions on our Facebook page. What I'm going to do is pause this and we'll organise a time in the next few weeks to pick this up again because I think it's really super important that we follow this on and as we mentioned at the start of the program, one of the risks of having this be a pulse event, a bit like the cuttlefish, is that these crabs come in and then they go again and that, that sort of disappears off our, our radar. But it's super important that we continue this along and also to give people um, who have submitted those questions a chance to have them addressed because um, I did promise to do that, but I've got Jeff waiting to do his segment. So um, how about... I am happy to answer a few as well over the Facebook page, so keep them coming, everyone. Great. Hey, PT, um, Jackie, thanks so much. Any final words from both of you before we um, we pause this for now and then return? I would just say if people would like to go to the change.org um, petition, um, uh We've got that on our Spider Crab Alliance Facebook page. Um, and just, just have your say. Um, we'll definitely continue this again. Uh, PT? Yeah, and if you're in the Spider Crabs Melbourne group who would like to join, we've got lots of ideas in there how everyone can become involved and become a part of the solution for addressing issues and celebrating our Spider Crabs in 2021. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you both and um, we'll look forward to doing that again in the next few weeks. Okay, Thank see you soon. Bye, guys. PT Hirschfeld and uh, Jackie Younger there talking about spider crabs. It's 9.51. We will continue this discussion too. This is not the end uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time and we'll let you all know when we're going to be doing that. Might even look at maybe some talk back. Triple R is where you are, where it is 9.53 and you're listening to uh, the final final seven minutes or so of Radio Marinara um, for uh, this Sunday. And standing by on the phone, Jeff Maynard for our, uh, our, what do we call it, our monthly edition of Soundscapes. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you? I feel like I'm being punished, Brian. Um, <laughs> what is that? Well, I've been I've been trying to do all these segments on 1950s black and white drive-in movies this year, and you keep contacting me and saying, you know, what about this? And you're sending off. And this, this was this week. It was like, oh, there's a 1960s cartoon show or something about Namor the Submariner. Why don't you do that one? And and I did. And 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 it wasn't easy. 
Um, so, look, I, I know we're pushed for time, and I'm just going to have to get on. But I've never heard of Namor the Submariner. Do you know what, uh, Jeff? I hadn't either. And this this came my way through Leaping Larry L. And he he posted this up on my Facebook page um, uh, for my birthday. And I thought, oh well, let's let's check this one out a little bit. So, what did, I hadn't heard of Prince Namor either. So, what did you find? Yeah, well. Oh, look, I'm not happy, but anyway, okay. Um, uh, he he is he's a kind of he's a um, well a sub he swims under the water and comes out and he you know punches people and flies and all that sort of stuff. So let's get on with it. Give give uh, Kent a wave in the other studio and tell him to play track one. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. Lord Saber of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. An atmosphere of gloom pervades the fabled city of Atlantis. While many leagues away, the figure of the mighty submariner streaks surface word. And in the dark hours of the surface world's night, soon emerges from the sea. My head spins and my limbs are weak. Yet some powerful compulsion drives me on. There is something here that I must find. I must. Mm. Yeah, well, his, his father was a sea captain and his mother was a princess from Atlantis and she had to go to the surface world for some reason, met the father, they fell in love. Uh, Namor was the young prince that resulted. And it was one of those doomed love affairs that could never work because they came from two different worlds. And he first sort of came to the surface in 1939 in Marvel Comics. And he used to pop up occasionally and he'd sort of join the Fantastic Four or he'd come out and swim around Hulk or something like that. And in 1966, the Marvel superheroes got a, a cheapy animated cartoon series with um, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America and Hulk or something. And, and Namor, they kept sticking him in there. And in this particular episode, I found he comes to the surface and he's wandering around New York. So let's have a listen to the New York police trying to find uh, Namor. This is track two. Yes, that's him, all right. Him? Who? The Submariner. I wonder what brought him back to the surface. You mean he came out of the sea? That's right. And he has little love for surface people. There's no telling what he's up to, but you can be sure it's no good. Put out an all-points bulletin for Namor, the Submariner. A guy just doesn't walk around New York with wings on his feet and not be seen. I still think he headed back to sea. That's it! Sooner or later, he must find water. Even though he is part human, he must replenish his strength every so often with water. I want every source of water in the city patrolled. The East River, the waterfront, and keep a sharp eye on the fire hydrants. Now, I know what you're thinking, Brian. You're asking what everybody is thinking. Who is stronger? Who has the better superpowers, Prince Namor or Aquaman? Well, I actually have the answer. Um, but Namor can fly. Aquaman can't fly. Uh. Uh, Aquaman can swim very uh, fast underwater. This is the sad places I go on the internet because of you, Brian. But, uh, Aquaman, Aquaman can swim underwater and and, leap, and and sort of come out of the water so fast that he can actually leap about 20 metres in the air, and that gives him the appearance of flying, but he can't actually fly. But Namor can. But there's a re and, but the, their, their weakness is they both have to return to the water every hour or so, otherwise they, they get into trouble. So let's have a listen to track three. Namor's wandering around New York and running out of water. What mysterious force urges me on? I must not stop. Yet my limbs grow weak. I must find water. 
for only that will restore my waning strength. The sea, the life-giving sea, I must reach it. If you're thinking about taking a swim, forget it. The sea, I must reach the sea. Get him, fellas. <gasps> oh, no. Oh, yeah, but now the big thing is, the big question is, of course, why hasn't he appeared in all these Avengers movies? And the really sad, the really sad thing about all this is there are people and um, uh, the, the, the Marvel comics world, there are people who go through all the Avengers movies frame by frame looking for clues, what they call Easter eggs, for mm. things that are coming up. And, and somebody, and I don't know who it was, but he actually went through all the Avenger movies and found a reference to Namor or hint that he may be coming up in a future one. So this is from Avengers Endgame or something. But just have a listen to this nerdy guy on the internet, track four. How's it going, everybody? It's Warren, and today we have to talk about one of the biggest Easter eggs in Avengers Endgame, and that is how Avengers Endgame sets up Namor to enter the MCU. So, Namor, the Submariner, is a character who fans have wanted to see enter the MCU for a really long time now. Namor is the ruler of Atlantis, and he has mutant genes. Nick Fury is meeting with Iron Man to talk about the Avengers initiative, and while they talk, nearby is a map of the world. And on this map, it has markers of people that they are monitoring across the world. And one of these markers is right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Ooh. Uh, look, I don't know what's sadder, the fact that some guy sat down and went through hours and hours and hours of mindless sort of Avengers movies frame by frame, or the fact that when he puts it on the internet, he gets about 600,000 views of people looking at this stuff. So, anyway, that's Prince Namor. I've given you the abridged version from, and, um, yeah, look, uh, we can look for him soon in Avengers movies. That's so awesome. I'm so excited. I love that you called this. Yeah. And it's on air now. It's going to happen. I know. <laughs> thanks so much, Jeff. And look, thanks for indulging me. And, um, and Leapster, if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed that one as well. And, yeah, let's, let's look out for Namor in um, future Marvel movies. He's, he's coming up soon. Yep. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. You too. Catch you soon. Bye for now. That brings us to the end of Radio Marinara for this Sunday. Thank you so much, Farm. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you so much, Kent. Kent's been juggling about 18 different <laughs> 18 different balls today, so thank you so much. Um, thanks also to P.T. Hirschfield and uh, Jackie Younger. Talking about spider crabs, we are going to pick that one up again in the future. Um, on next week's program, Dr. Beach is going to be in the house. Um, that We're going to be catching up with Neil Blake and going to be playing an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with Rebecca Giggs, author of World in the Whale. Fascinating discussion and absolutely amazing book about the history of our relationship, humans' relationships with whales in all sorts of different facets and, and ways. So really looking forward to um, to bringing that to you next week. Can't wait. <laughs> Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. They will be taking you through to 11 o'clock when uh, Dr Shane and the crew will take you through to 12. Have a wonderful Sunday and we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.